But let's pray and ask God for help as we come uh, to this passage this morning. Heavenly Father, we give you and thank you and praise to you for the great privilege it is for us to be able to pray, to be able to come to you. I uh, thank you that we're not just whistling into the wind or our words are just bouncing off the top of this amphitheater, Lord, but rather that as we pray, uh, Lord, that you are present with us, that you hear our prayers. And we pray, Lord, as we come to you right now, please, Lord, stir our hearts. Uh, please convict us by your spirit. Please point us to Jesus. And please, uh, may your spirit be at work within us, transforming us and making us more into the likeness of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Because we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, I was in uh, Melbourne. I was visiting a friend, but I had to catch uh, the last train back to Geelong, where I was living at the time. Uh, and so my friend decided to come with me and to walk with me to this train station to keep me company. Uh, I, was keeping it I was cutting it pretty fine, but I knew that if I just walked straight down Burke Street, then I'd hit Southern Cross Station. Uh, as we were walking down Burke Street, my friend kept asking me, look, Sammy, are you sure you're heading in the right direction? I told him, look, I know Melbourne. I've been here many times. Don't be silly. I know where I'm going. And I told him, look, can you please hurry up? Because I'm going to miss my train if you don't hurry up. So we kept walking, and we eventually arrived. Uh, but it wasn't the train station. It was Parliament Building. And it was at the very, very opposite of end of Burke Street, the opposite end of the city. So I abandoned my friend abruptly, said a quick goodbye, and I sprinted. Kind of, sprint is a bit of an overstatement, but you get the idea. <laughs> no, I ran very, tried to run quickly down Burke Street to the other end of the city to try and catch my train. I managed to realize that I was wrong, do a U-turn, and head off in the right direction to get to my destination just in time, even though it nearly killed me. But sometimes our failure to change direction can have disastrous results, not just for ourselves, but also for those around us. Change and the need for change and the need to keep changing is the big idea about what we're looking at this morning. It looms large at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. It looms large throughout the whole gospel of Matthew. And we're going to see this morning that having to admit that we're wrong and changing course is a fundamental part of what it means to begin to follow Jesus and also what it means to keep following Jesus. We will see this morning that coming to Jesus, the change is demanded, change is urgent, and also change is possible. The demand for change is there in the first few verses of Matthew 3. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness in Judea and saying, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Did anybody pick up the word, choose the word repent? Is the word, oh, thank you, some people did, that's good. I have no idea what other word you find in that passage. Um, you can come and speak to me afterwards. But you know, the word repent, people tend to not like the word repent because, well, people don't like being told what to do. And people don't like change because people are, someone's telling them to change. But the word repent, you know, it isn't a preference. It isn't a suggestion. It isn't even an invitation. It's a command. 
You know, repent comes from a word that means, you know, to change your mind. But it isn't just an intellectual exercise. You see, repent also involves confession. It involves admitting that you are going in the wrong direction. And that's what people are coming out to do in verse 6. They're, they're taking responsibility for their sins. And they're coming and they're confessing their sin to God. But repentance is more than just confession. Because repentance also involves contrition. It involves feeling sorry or feeling sorrow over our sin. It's a deep realization in our hearts that we have hurt God and we have hurt people. But again, you know, that isn't enough because repentance also involves conversion. It involves a change of direction. It involves a turning away from sin. You know, if I'm driving my car from Brisbane to Cairns, and I suddenly realize that I'm 50 kilometers from Sydney because I'm heading in the wrong direction, knowing that information won't get me any closer to Cairns. Feeling sorry about it is not going to get me any closer to Cairns. But knowing how I've stuffed up and actually doing something about it, doing a U-turn, and starting to drive in the right direction, that is repentance. Repentance isn't only just driving in the right direction, it's keeping driving and continuing to move in the right direction. Confession, you know, contrition, conversion, that is what John is calling the people to do. And that's what, John, that's what God and what John is calling us to do this morning. But why? Well, it says it there, doesn't it? Because the kingdom of heaven has come near. You might want to you know, circle those three words, you know, kingdom of heaven, because this is the first time of 32 times where we're going to see this phrase in Matthew's gospel. In other places, it's sometimes referred to as the kingdom of God, but it's basically the same thing. John says, repent because the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent because the reign and rule of God is now finally breaking into the world and is breaking in in an entirely new way. Repent because a new day has dawned on the history of the world. Repent because God's chosen king has finally come. But how do we know? How do we know that the king has come? How do we know that this is the time? That God is demanding for change. Why do we know that now is the right time for God to demand that change? Why? Well, because of the ministry of John the Baptist. John comes, you know, preaching in the wilderness in Judea. And that's not just telling us that John's some kind of bush tucker man who likes kind of going out and spending his time in the wilderness. You know, the wilderness, it was a, a great place of tenderness between God and his people. It was in the wilderness where God first gave the law, you know, the pattern of how he was calling his people to live. That's where he gave it to them, in the wilderness. It was also a place where God tested and disciplined his people. It's a place where, God, where God's people learned to love and obey him. And later on, you know, as God's people disobey him, and as God's people turn away from him, and God punishes them by sending them into exile... The prophet Hosea, you know, he talks about a day whenever God would woo his people again like a lover. And he'd love them, he would love them and, 
and woo them back into the wilderness where he would renew his relationship with them again. So here is John telling the people by his geographical position after 400 years of God being silent that it is now time for a change. It is now a time for a fresh start because the king, God's chosen king, God's saviour is coming. He has come. Also look at John's lifestyle. You know, he's wearing a garment made of camel hair, a leather belt around his waist, and he lives off locusts and wild honey. And again, this isn't just some kind of, kind of a passing observation. These are the clothes God's prophet Elijah wore back in two kings. In the very last chapter of the whole of the Old Testament, the book of, of, of Malachi, there the prophet talks about a day when God would send Elijah before the coming of God's chosen king. He says this, you know, look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. You know, John's clothing and his commitment to a simple lifestyle, it was an indication that that day had finally come. Notice also how John is fulfilling the words of prophecy. The words of prophecy from Isaiah 40. Verse 3, you know, for he is the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah who said, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. In the ancient world, when a king returned victorious after a battle or whenever he was crowned king at the coronation, you know, meeting Major, you know, building projects or roadworks were often undertaken. You know, think about all the work that's being spent, all the money that's being spent at the moment, all the inconvenience that exists at the moment around Brisbane for the Olympic Games in 2032. You know, we think about the Cross River Railway Network, the, the work being done in Victoria Park, you know, the, the new GABA, which is, you know, there's all talk about, you know, what do we do? Do we knock it down? Do we build a new stadium? What are we doing there? And all the inconvenience that that's going to cause to everybody who's living on the south side. Thank you very much. In a similar way, you know, the coming of the king, it does not involve spiritually the equivalent of just planting a tree or building a statue. No, the coming of the king, it will involve major upheaval and renewal. Look at how that quote, you know, from Isaiah 40 continues. Every valley will be lifted up. Every mountain and hill will be leveled. The uneven ground will become smooth. And the rough places are plain. And the glory of the Lord will appear. And all humanity will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You know, it's, it's picture language. But, but, you know, here Matthew's saying that John the Baptist is announcing that this day, you know, a day unlike any day this world has ever seen, has finally come. And it's a day that demands tectonic change. It's a day that demands a reordering of our lives. The call to repent because Jesus is finally here, it's it's not a call just to put up your socks. It's not a call to kind of fix the door in a building that is condemned. It isn't a call, kind of like like a few tips of kind of at a self-help seminar. No, the call to repent is a call to completely recalibrate our lives. It's a call to reorientate our priorities, 
and practices and change how we live and how we think and how we behave. And how did the people, how did they respond to this call of repentance? Verses 5 and 6, you know, they, they listened. They recognized the signs. They said, John's right. The king is coming. My life isn't ready. I need to repent. They confessed their sin. They got baptized as a way of saying that they were going to turn their lives around. You know, God demands the same from us today. Because the king has come, and the king is coming again. You know, we can also say in that next section, with, with the coming of Jesus, change is urgent. A bunch of religious leaders, they come to see what John's doing. And look what John says to them. John's out to make some friends. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? He's basically calling these ultra-religious leaders, you sons of the devil. And to suggest that they were also going to face the wrath of God's judgment, it would have sounded shocking to Paul's hearers. You know, John kind of says to them, therefore, he says, produce fruit consistent with repentance. I mean, why does John say that to, the, to, the, um, to these religious leaders? He says that because these religious leaders, as we will see throughout the rest of Matthew's gospel, they have a, a tendency to get hooked on religious performance. But at the same time, they ignore the need to change their hearts and also to change their behavior in line with who Jesus is. You know, this was a bit like their venom. This was the poison that they were teaching the people. And why are they unwilling to change? Because they said, you know, we don't need to. We have Abraham as our father. See, like a lot of people today, they were trusting in their religious credentials. They can somehow think that they can piggyback off Abraham's faith into heaven. They think that they can be accepted by God because of their bloodline. Because of who their father is, or because of who their family is, or because of what the church they went to, or the denomination, or how many generations of Christians or whatever, or, or followers of God there are in their family. They think that they can be accepted by God, not just by their bloodline, but by the fact that they have kind of like performed some kind of religious ceremony or ritual whenever they were kids, or even now when they're adults. But notice John's reaction to this kind of faith, or this kind of anti-faith. He says, don't presume to call, to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. It's almost like these religious people, they, they felt that God owed them something for having some kind of connection with them. Now, God says he doesn't. He doesn't need their approval. You cannot be biologically Born into the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again. And if you're heading again down the, in the wrong direction, it doesn't really matter what kind of car you're driving. It doesn't matter what vintage your car is. Or it doesn't even matter who owns the car. If you're driving in the wrong direction, you need to turn around. And Matthew says you need to do it right now. Verse 10, 
John goes on and he says, The axes are ready at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, if you're here this morning and you know that you are intentionally disobeying God and you don't care, then that is where God's acts of judgment is sitting on your life this morning. And if you're here this morning and there's a massive disconnect between what you profess to believe about God or who Jesus is and how you're actually living your life, then that is where the acts of God's judgment is sitting on your life this morning. If you're here this morning and you continually reject God's right to rule over your life as king and you consistently reject his offer to save you from your sin or if you're here this morning and you're somehow trusting in something else or someone else for your salvation apart from him then that is where the acts of God's judgment is sitting on your life this morning. John Stott says this, that the faith that receives Christ must be accompanied by the repentance that rejects sin. The coming of Christ says change is urgent. Verse 12, you know, we, we read on, John says that his winnowing, fall, his winnowing shovel is in his hand and he will clear, this, this king will clear his threshing floor, gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. You know, it's a picture of a farmer, you know, people still do this today, of a farmer in, in certain countries that, that I'm in the Middle East and also in Africa, and whenever they're bringing in the harvest, they throw the wheat and the chaff into the wind and the, the wheat which is heavier falls to the ground the chaff is lighter it's blown away and it's the process by which grain and chaff are separated the grain would be taken away and used for its purposes the chaff which was useless would be taken and thrown into the fire you know this is the image that John uses to describe the coming of Jesus he's coming to separate those who repent and who trust in God for salvation and those who do not. And he says those who do not will be thrown into the fire that never goes out, into an unquenchable fire. Jesus is coming as saviour, but he's also coming as judge. And as judge, his wrath is imminent. The winning fork is in his hand. The axe is at the foot of the tree. Jesus the King has come. He's come to save us. He's come to save our family members and our friends. He's come to save the nations from this terrible fate if we will put our trust in him to save us. You know, a couple of years ago, we were um, in, uh, in Japan. I don't need to go another story from Japan anyway. Um, you know, we were living in Japan and I was uh, preaching at a church, but like this morning, and at the end of the church service, I said, okay, everybody, let's stand up. Uh, just close your eyes, let's bow our heads. Uh, we're going to come to the Lord Jesus and we're going um, to repent to Jesus. So let's bow our heads and do that. Um, let's, you know, let's, let's come to the Lord Jesus. And as I said the word repent, there was a loud bang in the room. 
And everybody turned around, and one of the ladies from our congregation had just collapsed on the floor. And everybody came, out, came rushing over to her, and they said, what happened? And she said, when you were speaking, and as soon as you said the word repent, in my head, I shouted, no! And as soon as I shouted, no, I was on the ground. Now, just for context, this woman isn't some lunatic, all right? She's not some loony bin. She's not a person who's, who'd ever been to a Pentecostal or a charismatic church and seen people slid in the spirit. You know, this woman, um, you know, she, was, she was an attention seeker. You know, this was something that happened, and she was terrified. And I can tell you this much. The church was terrified. There was a, a, there was a very healthy fear of God in the room that morning because they understood that this is serious stuff. There's a, there's a group that I listened to, used to listen to, called the Five Blind Boys of Alabama. They sang a song that said, don't play with God because he ain't nothing to play with. Don't play with God because he is nothing to play with. This is serious stuff. But the coming of Jesus, you know, change is demanded. But change is also urgent. So this morning, hear and heed God's call to repent. Hear his call over the next few weeks. Trust in what Jesus says. If you're heading in the wrong direction, turn around and follow him. And don't delay. Don't be content to let your commitment to Jesus and your obedience to Jesus slide. And also don't be content to watch other people around you slip and slide and still you say nothing. Let's humbly call each other and call one another to repentance. And finally, with the coming of Jesus, you know, change is also possible. Verse 11, John says that the baptism that he offers to the crowds, it's, it's only a precursor of another baptism brought by Jesus, who is much greater and more powerful than what he is. He says that Jesus will baptize those who come to him with the Holy Spirit and with fire. You know, being baptized by the Holy Spirit, it isn't an experience that is only for charismatic Christians, evidenced by the speaking of tongues. That is not what it means to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Rather, being baptized by the Holy Spirit is an experience of everyone who has put their faith in Jesus. If you've put your trust in Jesus this morning, then you have been baptized. You have been immersed into God's heart. You have been immersed into his will. You have been immersed into his life, into his forgiveness, into his ways, into his righteousness. He gives you a new heart. He gives you a new desire. He gives you a new vision for life. And as he does, he also purifies our lives. And I think that's what the fire is pointing to here. It's pointing to the power of Jesus to, to save us and to set us apart, to live lives that are holy and pleasing to him. Verse 13, oh, the king finally comes. He, he shows up. And suddenly the baptism of the crowds turns to the baptism of Jesus. There's a bit of a kerfuffle, you know, because John says that he is the one that should be baptized by Jesus and not the other way around. We get where, you know, where John's coming from, don't we? Because Jesus is the Son of God and he has no personal sin to confess. 
He's no contrition over sin that he's committed. He, he also, you know, doesn't need to convert from anything. But why does John, why does he relent and why does he baptize Jesus? It seems to be because of the words of Jesus in verse 15. Jesus says, allow it for now. Allow it just for now. Because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. You know, there's a lot of discussion uh, around what Jesus is saying here about, you know, fulfilling all righteousness. But I think that, that when we get baptized, you know, we, we identify with Jesus. You know, Jesus dies on the cross for my sin and that he rises again from, from the dead to give me new life. And so whenever I am baptized, I'm identifying with what Jesus has done for me. But in Jesus' baptism, I think Jesus is identifying with us. He is identifying with us in our sin because he is going to take our sin and die for it on the cross. And he's going to do that to set us free from the power of sin over our lives. He's also identifying with us in, in our raising again from the dead as he himself will rise from the dead and he will enable us and he will empower us to consistently turn our lives around and live for him. That is the power of the resurrection in our lives. Jesus is also, you know, modeling obedience to us. You know, he can't call us to obedience, which includes baptism, if he hasn't been baptized himself. You know, as Jesus is baptized, the heavens open up, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. And we know from Matthew 1 that even before Jesus was born, the Holy Spirit was upon him. But I think this is a public display of what the prophet Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 61, you know, of the Spirit of the Lord coming upon um, the God's anointed one to proclaim the good news, to, to heal the brokenhearted, and so on. The Son obeying, the Spirit anointing, and then the Father speaking, saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. You know, there's a lot that we can say about these verses this morning, about these words this morning. We don't have enough time to do that. But I think at their heart, we have God the Father with the Son, living in perfect love through the Spirit, calling us to repentance so that we might experience and delight in Jesus. I think that is what is the heart of repentance. Repentance isn't about God stopping us from having a good time. Repentance isn't about God being some kind of, having some kind of narcissistic control over us. No, repentance is God's invitation for us to come to his table. It's his invitation to us to come and join with the Father and with the Son and with the Spirit eternally rejoicing in one another. And we're being called to come and delight in that relationship. The King has come. God demands change. Change is urgent. And change is possible because ultimately change leads to indescribable delight. Let's pray. We have the Lord's Supper this morning. We are coming to the table. This morning, 
It's a, a great opportunity for us as we just take stock of our lives this morning, as we take our pulse, our spiritual pulse. Where are we at this morning? Are there things this morning that we need to confess? Are there things that we need to feel sorrow over? Are there things that we need to, to turn away from? Let's spend a few moments right now coming before God in repentance. But also as we come before him, let's delight in what he has done for us and dying for us on the cross and raising us to new life so that we can sit at his table eternally, delighting with the Trinity, with the Father, Son, and with the Spirit. Let's spend a few moments doing that right now. all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.